the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Yesterday, it was happy birthday, Frederick Bastiat, who uh, would have been 219, didn't make it. Today, it's happy birthday to, I think, the greatest living economist, Thomas Sowell, greatest living American economist, certainly, which makes him the greatest living economist in the world. Thomas Sowell turns 90 today. Thomas Sowell, 49 books, thousands of newspaper columns. I agree with Mark Perry, our friend over at Carpe Diem and University of Michigan. There is no economist alive today who has done more to eloquently, articulately, and persuasively advance the principles of economic freedom, limited government, individual liberty, and a free society than Thomas Sowell. And if you're not familiar with Thomas Sowell or you haven't read his work or you've just read some of it, read some of it or continue reading to read all of it. He is just the best. Just a few Thomas Sowellisms as we're about to talk about uh, free minds and free markets with uh, Senator Jim DeMint. On economics versus politics, economics and politics confront the same fundamental problem. What everyone wants adds up to more than there is. Market economies deal with this problem by confronting individuals with the costs of producing what they want and letting those individuals make their own trade-offs when presented with the prices that convey those costs. That leads to self-rationing in the light of each individual's own circumstances and preferences. Politics deals with the same problem by making promises that cannot be kept or which can only be kept by creating other problems that cannot be acknowledged when the promises are made. I mean, just one paragraph, just so much wisdom in Sowell's writing. He just packs so much into every sentence. The first lesson of economics is scarcity. There's never enough of anything to fully satisfy all those who want. The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. Exactly. So it's just a great framing because it forces you to make the decision. Do I want goods and services to be rationed by centralized bureaucracy by somebody else? Or do I want a free market economy where you self-ration based on the trade-offs of the cost of producing what they want versus the prices that are conveyed and assessing the prices that convey those costs? You know, can I afford it? Hmm. Circumstances, preferences. I make my own choices. Politics, government makes my choice for me. Which do you want? This is uh, in part the subject of Jim DeMint's new book, Saving America from Socialism, How to Stop Progressive Attacks on Freedom, which we'll release next week, but I'm sure you can pre-order it on Amazon. Well, I shouldn't say you could pre-order it on Amazon. Jim DeMint may be canceled on Amazon. Who knows? But I'm sure you can order it online. Saving America from Socialism, How to Stop Progressive Attacks on Freedom. Senator Jim DeMint, chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute now. Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's great to be back with you. And that was a great lead in from uh, Thomas Sowell. Economics of free markets is so rational. Politics has become so irrational and denies the whole idea of scarcity, particularly with uh, 
their borrowing and spending. Um, well, anyway, it was a great introduction, and we address a lot of that in Saving America. It seems to me that there's a real opportunity for conservatives to step up and change their approach to the rent seekers in Washington and at the state and local level, too. I mean, those rent seekers, they've never been your friends, but I know they've been your financiers. But now they're neither because they're completely in bed with uh, the Jacobins. And so why not formally announce a disassociation from the Fortune 1000 world not in the sense that the government should do anything punitive, that the conservatives should use government as a sword, but say we're removing government as a shield for you. Dan, actually, that's a good idea. At the Conservative Partnership, uh, we've recognized that a lot of the contributions that go to conservative groups from uh, these large companies with lobbyists and special interest actually uh, let's just say, uh, hurt the mission of those groups. And so uh, we are nonprofit, but uh, we, as far as I know, have not taken any money from a corporate 500 or lobbyist group. It's mostly just uh, individuals and family foundations and stuff like that who don't have a special interest. We've got to have conservative groups who are focused on the good of the country and are, are not being pushed towards the swamp. You're right. You've put your finger on the problem there. The big special interest swamp creatures in Washington give to both Republicans and Democrats, conservative groups, liberal groups, and they have their finger on both sides of it. And that's why you don't see a lot of positive move in the right direction. So uh, some of the greatest conservative groups there have uh, really, I think, been uh, completely changed by big corporate money. The young people is one thing. I, I mean, what about uh, middle-aged suburbanites that uh, have no understanding of uh, the threats that socialism poses, that have no no knowledge of what socialism is? They they essentially have the same sort of simpleton viewpoint that you were describing young people as having. You're right. A lot of folks are essentially ignorant of it, not just of socialism, but why capitalism works. And you gave a few of the reasons in talking about Thomas Sowell, but capitalism forces greedy people to work hard to serve others in order to make money. (laughs) And so there are a lot of checks and balances in, in competition and transparency. It's not perfect, but a lot of what people don't like about capitalism is really crony capitalism when government and big corporations get in bed together. And I explain a lot about this is is because the young people think that capitalism is for the rich, for big Wall Street. In fact, capitalism works the opposite. It keeps those accountable if government doesn't give the advantage to these big companies, which it has done. And we need to expose that and begin to try to change it. And again, the main point of the book here is that there's hope. I know we can fix this, but Americans have to know what's working for them and what's not, and how we can move our country in a positive direction. It seems to me that it's not going to be possible unless you get a change in the curriculum at the K through 12 level. And change in the curriculum at the K through 12 level is coming, but it's coming from the 1619 Project and other ahistorical pseudo-intellectual uh, leftist activists, scholarship like uh, Thomas Sowell and, and other thinkers, at least being part of the curriculum. I just don't see enough of a push from conservatives in that direction. I mean, clearly, we haven't learned from what the left has done over the last 50 years by taking over all of our cultural and civic institutions, starting with K through 12. You're exactly right. And that's my first recommendation and how we change this is 
education choices. A number of states now have moved towards what's called education savings accounts or education scholarship accounts where you actually attach the money to the child. We've seen it now in about 15 states and to various degrees. States are leading the way, and the minorities and at risk and the poor benefit from this more than anyone else. And so there are ways to solve this, but you're right. We cannot keep educating our kids in government schools and expect them to understand how freedom works. So that's the first recommendation, but it's not out of reach because a lot of states are beginning to move that way. They can't get the federal money to follow the student, but that's only about 10% of the funding. State and local governments can do a whole lot more to give parents a chance, and and they won't choose a school that teaches a 1619 project. I I guarantee you, the majority will choose a school probably that's faith-based, that has good character teaching, that has some discipline. The things that we've thrown out of public schools that we know work, parents will choose because they know it's best for their children. How important, then, is uh, November in terms of the prospects of, uh, of, of restoring a, a free market approach to the American economy, to our interactions with one another? As imperfect a vessel as President Trump is, it seems to me that um, are we going to be a free market economy or are we going to be a command control economy and society is on the table on November 3rd? I think the contrasts are so clear this time. If America does vote for a Joe Biden, they've clearly made the decision that they do they want to move away from everything that's worked in the past. So I think elections over the last couple of decades have become increasingly more important. Certainly it was important last time Hillary Clinton would would have dug us in a deeper hole than Obama did. But for America to make a choice now, after they've seen what the Trump economy does, when you take down the regulations, when you lower taxes, when you move more decisions back to the states, we saw the results of that. And if America votes against that, uh, that's going to be a sad day for our country. And uh, so I see this election as critically important. One of the things we're working on at the Conservative Partnership is to help put good people around the president in his second term good conservative folks who agree with his agenda. The big problem he's had his first term is he kept too many of Obama's uh, holdovers, and a lot of them have been working against him. So we're we're working with uh, some of the folks there to try to recommend some of the top conservatives from around the country to work in the administration so he'll have some good people around him. He is Jim DeMint, former United States Senator from South Carolina, chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute. Now his new book, Saving America from Socialism, How to Stop Progressive Attacks on Freedom, which releases next week, which you sure you can order online right now. Jim DeMint, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be back with you. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Interesting piece in the Chicago Tribune from Clarence Page, as a member of the Trib Ed Board. Uh, I think he just uh, celebrated 50 years at the Tribune. He um, t- talked about why he has a collection of racist memorabilia. He also recounted a visit to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, 
in the Jim Crow Museum at Ferris State University in, in Michigan. You know, it, it sounds like an odd thing. Why would you even memorialize in a museum racist memorabilia? Well, there's a purpose to it, and maybe that informs what the approach should be and the conversation should be surrounding monuments, scholarship in the classroom, American history, diversity of viewpoints. Maybe there's something to be gleaned from uh, why Clarence Page keeps this racist memorabilia. For more on this, let's ask him. Clarence Page, Pulitzer Prize winning syndicated columnist, Washington-based member of the Troops Ed Board, as I mentioned. Clarence, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. And so why do you keep this collection that you describe in your column? I wasn't planning to be a collector of racist memorabilia. As I recounted in my column, though, I was back in the 70s, I was over at some uh, antique shop on uh, Well Street. I, uh, I saw up on the wall something that really grabbed me, riveted my attention. I said, I got to have it. There was a sign that said Colored Waiting Room. Under it were the initials of the Nashville Chattanooga and St. Louis Railroad, which went out of business like in the 40s or 50s. And why did that grab me? You know, immediately I flashed back to when I was a little kid and my parents were taking me down south to what we call the old country, but you all know it's Alabama. The first time, a cognizant time that I learned what segregation was. Uh, and uh, we would sit on the hard benches in the colored waiting room waiting for the train to, to change in Nashville. That was a uh, very profound meaning to me and, and a lot of other black folks, to say the least. And I said, i got to have this sign. And I asked the guy, how much is it? And he said, well, it's $100, but for you, 79 I, you know, I'd really rather you have it than some white guy who's just going to put it up over his basement bar for the giggles. And I was just a you know, typical sales talk, but that, that's okay. <laughs> I, was, I, I was ready to get, to get this sign. Why do I have to have it? I, I have to say it's just gut personal. But later on, I was visiting some friends at their house, and I saw they had these Aunt Jemima magnets on their refrigerator. They said the same thing. You know, I, I just had to have it. But when I met the woman who's now my wife, she had some other items in her house, but there aren't many bookends, which you can barely see in the picture there in the paper. It turns out that a lot of black folks collect this memorabilia. First time I wrote about it years ago, I got a bunch of white folks uh, sending me their memorabilia <laughs> because everybody's got something in their attic that they got from, from an aunt or uncle or a great-grandparent or something, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't want to throw it away to respect their own memories, but they don't want to publicly display it either. And so they asked me if I'd like, like to have it. And, and later on, I did a TV uh, feature on PBS. Again, I got people just sent me a package with their dolls in it or whatever. Now, after I wrote this column, I've got uh, people who are going to be sort of sending me stuff now. I'm waiting for it to arrive to add to my collection. Well, so, so you're taking this all in very good humor. Uh, and, of course, you've lived through part of this period as well, the, the part of the That's Jim Crow era. Now. That's right. yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. but, but so why? What, what, is it, what is it that this memorabilia says to you? What is it? What, what can it teach us? The best reason I have it is I've got a son. He's 30 years old now. But when I tell my son about the Jim Crow era, I've got evidence right here. Mm. And I mean, there's so much stuff that was so bizarre. You sometimes wonder, did that really happen? Or is my memory fade? Whatever. Well, I've got evidence now. I can look up at my colored waiting room signs. Oh, yeah, we did go through that, didn't we? Uh, and this sort of thing was all a product of the Jim Crow era, post-Reconstruction, the South 
was trying in every way to reestablish the racial caste system. They did a heck of a job of it, uh, and they, it resulted in the civil rights movement that I grew up with back in the 60s and the 50s. Then you have the, uh, uh, the kind of politics of that era really are reflected in how much the culture has changed. The fact that now white folks are hiding it and black folks want to buy it and collect it and put it on display like at the Smithsonian, the African-American Museum, et cetera, uh, shows you just how much things have changed. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember is how much things have changed and how much Americans are capable of change. Yeah, I think that is a great point. And it, it also speaks to the need to preserve our history, the the good, the bad and the ugly. So we have right. some some basis to measure, as you say, right? That's right. Absolutely. And I, uh, I love my Aunt Jemima, by the way, because uh, my mother loved it. She bought it when I was four years old uh, to, uh, to help me save money for college. She was planning way ahead. And, uh, <laughs> only, only, only we called it the Aunt Lara doll because it does resemble my mother's Aunt Lara. Oh, and yeah. so it, it was a very, something I tell people, yeah, I love it like a member of the family uh, because it almost is. Whereas Aunt Jemima in the black community, believe me, when you grow up, that's a real uh, insult. Uh, uh, like like Uncle Tom. And by the way, Uncle, Uncle Tom, I think, got a bad rap, too. But you got to read the book to understand what I'm talking about. Yes. Anyway. Yes. Well, uh, reading the book, oh, there's a concept that is uh, fallen out of favor, too. And it's not just with respect <laughs> to Harriet Beecher Stowe. But 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 so the, your perspective on the importance of history to understand the progression, then how do you react to what you're seeing across the country with respect to, you know, monuments and and books in particular courses or particular institutions and television shows and sort of all of the self-censorship and sort of the the, the tearing down uh, and, and many people tearing down things that they do not understand? Well, that's right. Actually, I've often said, because I've become a student of uh, the Civil War, really, uh, and, and what that means for our country and I've often said that black folks and Southern white folks, and I mean Southern heritage white folks, those who, who really revere the Confederate flag, et cetera, et cetera, we've got one thing in common and something uniquely in common, and that is we've got really long memories. It's like this, uh, you think the Civil War was back in the 1860s. We think it was last week. And I mean, I mean that's something I've actually made connections with. Uh, members of the Sons of the Confederacy, et cetera, by just sitting and talking about the war. And was it, was it the Civil War or was it the war between the states? Was it the, uh, war, the war of northern aggression, as a lot of uh, Southerners like to call it? And it's really, I mean, the very fact that even though we're on opposite sides on this politically, uh, et cetera, uh, we connect because we care. And that's one thing that Southern white folks really want is to get past the stereotypes and say, hey, I've got a voice, too. And I think that's something that we hear in politics every so often. And it's been very educational for me. But the statue controversy, uh, as I have said, you know, no, the statues were not actually built uh, during the war or immediately after it. They were really built during the Jim Crow era right. as one more sign of a white supremacy. When you go out and just tear it down like, like a vandal, then uh, you get reckless. You, you are destroying history. I'd rather put them in a museum or, or, or like in uh, Germany. They have parks to commemorate the, uh, the old East Germany, the, the old communist nom- nomination. So you can see those marks and Lenin statues and all that. Over here, some of these folks going out, there was one statue I heard about, maybe you did too, was a statue of a leading abolitionist. Yes. Sure. And it was torn down as if he was, uh, was uh, you know, some uh, Confederate general. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's, that's just recklessness and, and counterproductive. It tells me they don't care about history, and I do care about it. 
When we come back with Chicago Tribune columnist Clarence Page, I want to discuss whether the real cultural divide in America today is along racial lines or economic ones. More with Clarence Page when we return. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with Pulitzer Prize-winning Chicago Tribune columnist Clarence Page, and I, I want to get to the cultural divide in America in 21st century America, 2020 America. Clarence, is it is it really along racial lines today? Or is it more along economic lines? Is it, is it an issue of race or is it an issue of poverty is what I'm getting at? I'm always pulled for a class-oriented approach and opportunity-oriented. And uh, I hope to have a book out soon unless I get off my butt and do it. Because I used to be in the war on poverty back in the late 60s. I uh, spent a summer working in Appalachia among mostly poor white folks. And, you know, I, I know a lot of folks who uh, had it worse off than I did growing up. You know, the only thing is they didn't have the segregation. So race is always an issue out there. These days, you know, they talk about like, the Black Lives Matter movement. What intrigues me is how, with this generation, they are leaderless. They don't have a Dr. King or a Malcolm or whatever. Uh, these are leaderless movements very much in keeping, well, like, like the uh, uh, occupying Occupy Wall know, Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ever, yeah. Right. Another leaderless movement, which, uh, like I said, to, to me, this is uh, not not the way to organize, but this is the Twitter age. And that's why you have people coming out now and expressing their indignation, uh, regardless of uh, race or class. They will organize around whatever issue is powerful enough to move them. And so I uh, feel like uh, we're moving in that direction now where we're starting to realize this is supposed to be the land of opportunity and that we've got to extend that opportunity to, to make sure everybody has it. Uh, are you afraid at all that um, uh, the sort of anti-racist uh, intellects, uh, the Robin D'Angelo's and the Ibram Kendi's who suggest that there's no such thing as not being racist, you, you are racist and you basically just need to sort of manage it for the rest of your life? Um, do you think that sort of well, obs- obsession uh, and, and and the arguments they're putting forward? I mean, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility is the number one bestseller on Amazon, right? I- is that helpful to uh, advancing social cohesion? Do you think? In fact, all the books on race relations are number one sellers nowadays. Yeah, well, there's another remarkable phenomenon that has occurred. I'm not afraid of, of the R word. Uh, I uh, first heard that uh, everybody's racist a line from Dick Gregory back in the 60s uh, when he came to our campus. And he was saying, you know, yeah, w- uh, we've all got some, some line you don't cross. And, and he said, I draw the line at if my wife leaves me for another man, I hope he's black. You know, and I mean, everybody laughed. Yeah. But he's right. We all have some line of, 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 of what, prejudice, uh, racism, whatever. And we need to deal with it realistically instead of just reflexively saying, well, well, I'm not racist. You know, because 
uh, people think that a racist has to be somebody who's got Ku Klux Klan robes in their closet no, or something. I, you know? I understand that. I understand. And, uh, we're, we're just talking about about uh, the prejudices we have. We need to get past that. No, I understand that, and 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 having a frank discussion like that doesn't uh, frighten me either. But but what does is the purge that's associated with it today. That uh, any sort of hint, however innocuous. And then you, you know, you mob justice is meted out to, for someone with respect to their professional career or their kids school or, or what have you digging into tweets when kids are you know, pre adolescent and so forth, like we've seen and yeah. and and um, uh, doxing people, and all of all of those uh, emblems of the purge. That's the problem to me. Yeah, yeah. The, the cancel culture is it's commonly called. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've written against that. Uh, and uh, or at least to put it into perspective, I think that, uh, first of all, somebody who commits a racial faux pas, if it's their first time and they genuinely didn't mean to be offensive, I believe you should give them a break. Uh, I believe that, that we're all engaged in an education process. I've uh, offended people without meaning to, whether it's around race or various other issues. Uh, heaven knows my wife has had to pull my coat more than <laughs> more than once or twice about my sexism. You know, and uh, I think we all need to, to give each other a little bit more of a break here. Yeah. And, uh, you mentioned humor earlier. We got to have it. You know, I, I have my biggest problem with people who just uh, have uh, have a, what, what I call irony deficiency. Uh, they just uh, don't yeah. uh, uh, see the obvious humor in these situations. And that's really the best way. Uh, for us to get past that and, and really uh, you know, educate each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just it, it's not particularly charitable to go around trying to jackpot people all the time, is it? That's right. That's right. And it's just uh, yes. it's also disunifying. Uh, dis- yes, it's, and it's a, it's a very small way to live. He is uh, Clarence Page, Pulitzer Prize winning syndicated columnist, Washington-based member of the Chicago Tribs Ed Board. Clarence, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show well uh, a bit of a spirited exchange there was between tucker carlson and indiana senator mike braun friend of the show we've had him in the show a number of times like mike braun a lot I'm not so sure his appearance on Tucker Carlson's show was his best moment because I'm not so sure his um, support in a limited sense, but a somewhat confusing sense for Black Lives Matter is his best moment either. This is what uh, Mike Braun said that drew the attention of Tucker Carlson and uh, and the opprobrium of Tucker Carlson, too. You support the, the Black Lives Matter movement. I support that movement because it's uh, addressing an inequity that has not been solved, uh, you know, from a grassroots level. Support the movement because it's addressing an inequity that's not been solved. I don't know if Mike Braun is making a distinction between first letter cap, Black Lives Matter, your organization, or lowercase, 
BLM, just people protesting against uh, police brutality. I'm not so sure that he's making the distinction. I'm not so sure how much of a distinction there is, actually, if you're going to characterize yourself with those three words in this time. And that led to uh, this opening salvo from Tucker Carlson. Talk about a leading question. Why do you support it? And are there any other race-specific revolutionary movements that you support? (laughs) So, Tucker, thanks for having me on in the first place. I know when you uh, came out, and I like it when somebody does challenge, especially something like this, when you're talking about changing something that's been around for a while. And, Tucker, I come from Main Street. Uh, Your uh, viewers are my supporters. And I've got one of the most conservative voting records. No, that's true. You'd have to check with them. Just like I checked with the Indiana State Police, Indiana Sheriff's Association, Fraternal Order Police, spent over an hour with them last week to make sure I wasn't off base. And here's where I come from. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm I'm, I'm confused really quick. Hold on. You're you're off base in your support of Black Lives Matter, your endorsement that you just gave? Have you read their website? Or are you in favor of abolishing the nuclear family? What what do you support exactly in the Black Lives Matter? No, I'm not at all. What does that mean? I, I support anybody that does have a grievance to be able to air it. And that's it. Well, you know, so that's okay. Obviously, anybody, everybody should have a right to petition the government. Everybody has has a right to air their grievance. That's not really in controversy. But suggesting that you support Black Lives Matter for that narrow reason, can you really, with their neo-Marxist manifesto, as clearly displayed per what I've been saying on the show for weeks and what Tucker mentioned, uh, the What We Believe section on their website is all right there in black and white. It is not in controversy. I mean, one of the co-founders, Patrice Cullors, uh, 2015 interview we played on this show, myself and my colleague Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter as well, are trained Marxist activists. That's what we are. I mean, so you, you should take them at their word, I think, as well as the behavior that backs up that word that we're seeing. You know, it's just sort of gooey. I, I just think perhaps to be charitable to Senator Braun, he just uh, chose a bad way to try to characterize his thinking, because what he really gets into as they continue the exchange is the need for engagement on the topic, the need for Republicans to be seen as proactively addressing some of these legitimate grievances. I believe you ought to have the ability to, uh, just like when anyone's civil rights would be violated, that you've got access to uh, due process to have your case well, heard. But they do. That, but they well, do they have do. that right. Qualified immunity, hold on. Qualified immunity has nothing to do with that case. He's been charged. They have the right to sue him under qualified immunity, as you know, since you're writing the, the change to the law. So that's irrelevant. I'm asking about the case. You cited it. Do you believe that the officer now facing the death penalty deserves to face the death penalty? And if you don't, tell us what he should have done. I think that that's going to be determined by the court. Yeah. And so without getting into the Rashard Brooks case, they obviously have a difference of opinion over the uh, police shooting of Rashard Brooks in Atlanta and whether or not that was justified or not. Certainly, there's another argument to be made that it was not justified, but it's not a felony murder. It's not a death penalty eligible crime that was committed, if you argue a crime was. But but just setting that aside, because what he's getting to, Tucker Carlson there and Mike Braun, on the issue of qualified immunity, and Braun, to be clear, is not proposing a repeal of qualified immunity, but he is proposing that it be amended because the way the courts have interpreted qualified immunity has resulted in some unfair, irrational judgments. For example, 
2018 case from Washington State, a federal appeals court tossed out a suit against an officer who allegedly pointed his gun at the head of a cooperative suspect and threatened to kill him. The court said suspects in those circumstances have a right not to have a gun pointed at them, but that right was not clearly established at the time the events took place. That The way in practice courts have interpreted qualified immunity is that there has to be nearly an identical conduct by an officer that was ruled unconstitutional for the conduct in question before a court could be ruled unconstitutional and could be actionable by a plaintiff. Another case, Atlanta-based court ruled last year the officer couldn't be sued after he allegedly twice shot at an unthreatening dog during an arrest, accidentally hitting the knee of a 10-year-old who was lying on the ground nearby. The court said the conduct wasn't clearly unlawful at the time because of the the lack of a, a case that presented similar facts. Those are problems. And there are other cases that have been documented as this debate about qualified immunity and amending it or reforming it has moved along uh, and is continuing to be debated. So, you know, Mike Braun's position on qualified immunity is not unreasonable. I think this is where he's going to try to tailor the legislation so that courts are interpreting in a way that uh, that encourages conclusions consistent with substantive justice. Um but, you know, the, the whole black, like the whole adopting Black Lives Matter, I also get Tucker's point here, and I'm not trying to middle the issue or middle the two gentlemen, but I also get Tucker's point here. You know, it, it sounds like the sort of appeasement and rhetorical surrender that Republicans way too often do. You know, Braun goes on about we need to engage, we need to engage, or we're going to be held accountable for not engaging. Well, Tim Scott's engaging, and look how he's being treated by the left. Why is it the left never feels compelled to engage? They can lob rhetorical grenades at the Tim Scotts of the world in the most denigrating ways and get away with it. So I, I can understand why T- Tucker's spidey sense was tingling by the way Braun endorsed Black Lives Matter in this narrow sense, which I don't think you can do based on the substance of who Black Lives Matter is as an organization. You want to talk about peaceful protesters, black, white and other uh, petitioning the government for redress, uh, having a, a desire to engage uh, in a material way on d- discussions of police reform, fine. But um, that is a politically charged phrase, Black Lives Matter. Braun knows it or should have known it, and you can understand why Tucker took after it. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Later in the show, we'll be talking to uh, Abby Johnson about uh, the dismal Supreme Court decision on the Louisiana pro life law that uh, we talked about a bit yesterday. But uh, today, uh, this morning, we got good news from the high court. Uh, They, uh, by a 5-4 majority, uh, John Roberts actually held on an issue, uh, the issue being uh, religious schools being eligible for uh, state scholarship program. So another victory for school choice. Uh, you know, building off the Zellman decision from almost 20 years ago now, uh, Ilya Shapiro, who uh, runs constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, uh, former constitutional attorney, well, currently, but in, now in 
public uh, think tank practice rather than private practice. Uh, he tweeted out, I think, uh, a pretty cogent reaction. My take on the Espinosa school choice. This was a five hundred dollar tax credit program in Montana. Espinosa uh, is was the plaintiff. My take on the Espinosa school choice religious liberty case. This was a simple case that exposed blatant anti-religious discrimination. Montana created a tax credit scholarship program, which state authorities didn't allow religious parents to take advantage of and which the state Supreme Court shuddered rather than allowing those parents to send their kids to religious schools. Our Constitution simply doesn't permit that sort of thing. Right. What's scary, Shapiro goes on to tweet, is that this easy call became a 5-4 vote. That's the margin on which freedom of conscience rests in this country, at least with respect to government action. It shows why various states' nefarious Blaine amendments are a blot on our liberties and why school choice is more important than ever. Uh, He's right about that, too. The uh, bigoted Blaine amendments uh, that uh, uh, still are uh, part of many uh, states' constitutions. That's uh, exactly right. So a victory for school choice, but um, it's being treated as uh, some sort of landmark decision uh, as Shapiro notes, uh, pretty straightforward here, uh, blatant anti-discrimination. It's another victory for school choice. And so, you know, the uh, precedent continues to build that uh, money should be able to follow the child, should be attached to the child. As long as parents are making the spending decisions and the state is not picking winners and losers, as it were, not endorsing a particular denomination then uh, school choice should be able to continue to blossom. But it's not really the, the, a problem at the, the court level anymore. It's a problem getting through the teachers unions and the politicians they control at the state level, particularly in states that have big urban centers. That's the real struggle. That's the real fight happening across the fruited plains as now a couple of dozen states have various forms of tax credit slash scholarship programs in force at present. This is Dan Proff. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts and program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. The uh, competing narratives of the left... Uh, Why are they so much better running parallel tracks of propaganda than conservatives are running one track of sense? It's uh, quite frustrating. Parallel tracks of propaganda. What do I mean by that? I mean, politicos, formerly uh, New Yorkers, Ryan Lissa, before he uh, had a bit of a Me Too issue at New Yorker, got bounced. He landed at Politico so that he could go to press briefings and ask questions like this of White House spokesperson Kaylee McEnany. President Trump believed that it was a good thing that the South lost the Civil War. And then, two, is he interested in following NASCAR's example and banning the Confederate flag at his own events? Well, your first question is absolutely absurd. He's proud of the United States of America. 
Is President Trump happy the South lost the Civil War? Another example of this, Nancy Pelosi on with uh, Clinton Foundation donor Zero over the weekend on Sunday, resuscitating the Russian collusion narrative when she's not accusing Senate Republicans of being accomplices after the fact in the murder of George Floyd. No, and we have called for a report to the Congress on this. This is as bad as it gets. And yet the president will not confront the Russians on this score, denies being briefed, whether he is or not his administration knows. And other, our allies who were, some of our allies who will work with us in uh, Afghanistan have been briefed and accept this report. Just as I've said to the president, with him all roads lead to Putin. He will not, he will, I don't know what the Russians have on the president politically, personally, financially, or whatever it is. Interestingly, Nancy Pelosi admitted that even a member of the Gang of Eight who gets these sorts of briefings, she did not get a briefing on this uh, assertion that uh, Russia had bounties out on American soldiers through the Taliban in Afghanistan. Yesterday, we talked to Heritage Foundation's Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano about Trump and Russia, just for some perspective to get out of this trap of arguing about uh, Trump's rhetoric with respect to Putin, the Helsinki incident, the substance of Trump administration policy with respect to our Russian adversaries. How about the substance? Here's Jim Carafano. The president's public diplomacy, which he does in spite of all the criticism that he gets, he, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to try to be a diplomat. He could just ignore the Russians and give people one less thing to criticism. But he takes those shots because it's part of Americans' comprehensive approach to dealing with Russia. But on the other hand, we are dead set against Nord Stream 2, which is the number one energy project the Russians want in Europe. It is, it is literally their golden, you know, golden ticket into Europe, and we, we've opposed that at every turn. We have strengthened NATO. We've got NATO to put another $100 billion into the defense of NATO, which the Russians hate. We have supported Russian sanctions from the Ukraine, which continue to this day. We have limited what the Russians have been able to accomplish in Syria. We have protested what the Russians are doing in Libya. We have armed the Ukrainians, which is the one thing the Russians didn't want us to do. So we have supported Georgia, which is a country that's having issues with the Russians. So it's very, very difficult to find, in an operational perspective, one area where we have actually given it to the Russians. Right. So in lieu of being able to find a substantive area where Trump had given in to the Russians, you just say all roads lead to Putin and just resuscitate the Manchurian candidate conspiracy theory. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Andrew Clavin, podcaster, uh, Another Kingdom Season 3. You should listen to all three seasons. Screenwriter for the movie Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer as well. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always good to be here. Thanks. What about um, the uh, competing um, lines of um, agitprop the left is is, uh, producing? Meanwhile, it it seems like President Trump and Republicans are having a difficult time uh, offering a cogent distillation of the choice facing America in five months. Yeah, it, it really is a problem right at this minute. I mean, I love the narrative that Donald Trump is, you know, Donald Trump is basically a 1990s liberal from Queens. And I love the idea that he's sitting in the White House wearing his Beauregard T. Rufus hat uh, and waving <laughs> a Confederate flag before, 
where he dresses up as Boris Badenov and goes off and spies with the Russians. You know, it's it's just that part. That part is just hilarious. You know, I mean, they and and only because they have this po-faced media that will echo and amplify everything they say with a straight face does this have any kind of weight at all. But right now, I think we have to say that Trump is also in a communication slump, and the reason he's in a communication slump is because things are are tough. You know, the economy is tough. Obviously, this plague has been a, a real problem, and the riots uh, from the Black Lives Matter radicals have been really bad. And he continues to talk about himself, and this is a problem. It is a, it is a genuinely good thing when Donald Trump takes on the press. But when he takes on the press because they're offending him, that doesn't resonate so much when other people are hurting. What people care about is their own lives. This is what politics is supposed to serve us. They're not a television show. It's not about Donald Trump. And I think that Trump has got to find a new tone and help people understand that he's thinking about us. He's attacking the press because the press hurts us. When he said the press was the enemy of the people, that's true. Our, our press is corrupt. Our press is Soviet-level corrupt. It really is. And so, you know, when he attacks the press on that level, he's doing great. When he attacks the radicals and says, you know, they're destroying property and they should be arrested and they should be accused of terrorism, that's, that's all fine. But when he talks about some newsman said something nasty about him or some politician, when he goes after guys like Jeff Sessions, which is just a stupid thing to do, obviously the other day he retweeted some dumb thing he probably didn't even listen to where somebody was screaming white power. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing that he's got, to, he's just got to pay more attention to. I mean, and he's not doing it. You know, yeah. Uh, and and also, too, just in terms of, you know, Trump has a responsibility uh, to lead the framing of the of, of the issue, the distinction between uh, the choices that are available on in November. But but there also doesn't seem to be any synchronicity with the Republican operation, generally speaking. For example, uh, uh, Judicial Watch obtained uh, documents through FOIA that uh, the Secret Service provided security protection for Hunter Biden on more than 400 domestic and international flights from June of 2009 to May of 2014, including a December 2013 trip where Hunter, Hunter Biden flew aboard Air Force Two with uh, with Dad Joe to Beijing. It seems to me that maybe this isn't Trump's job right now because you got to be focused on the pandemic. You got to be focused on public safety. You got to be focused on you know, all things related to COVID, including economic re- revival. But 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 there should be you know, an operation so that stories like this get amplified and questions about this get asked of Joe Biden, whether he's hiding out in his basement or not. And there just doesn't seem to be. Well, you, you've got to remember, we can never forget that the establishment Republican Party wants Trump gone. They have never liked him. They've never wanted him. He is basically an emanation of their failure, their their cynicism about the Tea Party. They never serviced the Tea Party. They always thought the Tea Party was just this kind of movement they could use to get power, but they didn't have to do anything about them. They were very comfortable uh, spending too much money. They were very comfortable letting the government get too much power. And Trump came along and he has disturbed things. That was what why he was sent to the White House, to disturb things. The, the mainstream Republican Party is not his friend. Half of them are so terrified that by linking themselves to him, their careers will be ruined if Trump loses, right. that they're just holding their tongues. They're just st- sitting back and hoping he kind of destroys himself. He, he is not there among friends. <laughs> no, no, I know, but, but, but it's, yeah. inc- it's incumbent upon him and his team to build the infrastructure that they, they don't have with the establishment party. 
That's right, and they're failing. That's, that's absolutely true. And one of the biggest, you know, I have complained about this with Trump from the very beginning, and people, Trump fans yell at me for this because I keep saying he's not, he's impolite, he's rude, and they keep saying, well, who cares if he's rude as long as he gets things done? That's not the point. It's one thing to attack the press. As far as I'm concerned, he can kick those guys down the street until like a tin can. It's one thing to attack the Democrats. They deserve it too. But when you're attacking people of, of respect on like Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson and Jeff Sessions, then it's just about you, you know, and his rudeness has, has caused him to fail to develop a network of friends in the, in the Republican Party. And it, it's a problem not because I want him to lose. It's a problem because I want him to win because I think he's really right now. I mean, look, it's a sad thing when our choice is between this this disturber, this guy who upends things, and a brain-dead ventriloquist puppy for the, puppet for the left. I mean, jo- Joe Biden is not even there anymore. Uh, he's just going to be a sort of Joe Biden face for the left to manipulate. That's the situation we're in. So Trump is really our only hope to keep the country limping along for a while uh, until we can start to establish better conservative governance. We have to support him, and he has to do a better job uh, of making sure his message is about the country and not only about Trump, Trump, Trump. Andrew Clavin, podcaster in Other Kingdom, uh, screenwriter of the movie Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. danproffshow.com Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Let's talk a little bit about police around the country, where they are, where they aren't, where they're wanted, where they're not. Start uh, in St. Louis with this uh, couple that's uh, gone viral, Mark and Patricia McCloskey a couple of uh, drippy trial lawyers in St. Louis who uh, made a stand for their property on Sunday during a uh, march of protesters. A march of protesters misreported in a number of outlets, initially at least, a march of protesters on private property. In other words, a march of trespassers on private property in front of the McCloskey mansion. And uh, Mark and Patricia McCloskey came outside to defend their property armed uh, not necessarily displaying that they were well-trained or practiced uh, gun owners, but they came out with a long gun and a handgun, respectively, uh, respectively and, and engaged the protesters. There was some jawboning go- going on. Uh, and the question is whether or not, uh, some, the question in some court is whether or not the McCloskeys uh, acted in a way that was violent or hostile. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Uh, it's worth noting that um, Missouri is an open carry state. It's worth stating again that these individuals were trespassing on private property and uh, there was every reason to be fearful of what a group that large might do, particularly in the context of what we've all been witnessing over the last three weeks in America. That context is important as well. Here's uh, Mark McCloskey. Uh, talking to a local TV station in St. Louis, giving his perspective and a little bit of color from the reporter as well. It was like the storming of the Bastille. The gate came down and a large crowd of very angry, shouting, 
aggressive people poured through. Tonight, the couple seen in this now viral video is detailing what they say was strictly self-defense. Mark McCloskey and his wife stood on their patio Sunday night pointing guns at a crowd of protesters. I was terrified that we'd be murdered within seconds, that our house would be burned down, that our pets would be killed. McCloskey says he and his wife called 911 and grabbed their guns as they heard the crowd approaching from afar. Video from another angle shows protesters chanting while walking into their private gated community, which appears to be open. But McCloskey says a key is required and later shared these photos of the gate destroyed. I stood up and uh, announced loudly, this is private property, please go back, leave. The, as soon as I said the words private property, it, it enraged the crowd. Sure, there was um, then a horde of people coming through the broken gate. The couple owns a law firm and says they've spent decades practicing personal injury and civil rights cases. Sunday night, McCloskey says protesters threatened to light his house on fire and kill his dog. He says police didn't come until after protesters left. One fella standing right in front of me pulled out two loaded pistol magazines, clicked them together and said, you're next. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those uh, who was protesting, um, protest organizer, spoke to that same uh, St. Louis TV station about uh, their trespassing on private property and rationalized it this way. Just like in many disobedient protests, even if it was in the 60s, you break laws, you make people feel uncomfortable. Um, we're not doing anything where we're hurting anybody or putting anybody in danger. Mm-hmm. Breaking laws, you know, comparing what they're doing, vandalizing private property, destroying that gate so they could get access to that private road and uh, not respecting somebody's private property, trespassing on private property. That's the same as the 60s civil disobedience marches and other activities. Is it really? No, it really isn't. Uh, the only thing in controversy here, uh, it's certainly not uh, the legitimate uh, right to protect one's property and person, a reasonable person uh, fear that it was a potentially life-threatening situation. Sure. It is not the fact that they were on private property and thus trespassing. It's not the question of whether or not uh, people should be arrested for or cited for trespassing as well as criminal damage to property. Um, it's so uh, where were the police? I don't hear anybody asking that question. And it goes back to the clip we played from uh, Tucker Carlson's show yesterday. Uh, the 911 call that woman in Fredericksburg made uh, a, a while back during one of the protests in Fredericksburg, Virginia. She's got a daughter in the car. The mob surrounds her car and starts jumping on her car. And the dispatcher says, oh, well, this is a sanctioned city event, so we're not going to respond. You call City Hall with your complaints. People are jumping on her car. She's got a daughter in the car. Uh, it can be a sanctioned city event in terms of a march. It cannot be a sanctioned city event in terms of, of people jumping on somebody's car because that's illegal. So the same thing here, the police standing down. And one wonders if that's at the behest of the mayor or it's uh, at the behest of the police brass or what it is exactly. But this feeling, again, of being neglected, being undefended, the law abiding, being treated, but not getting the city services they pay for, frankly, not the, the core city service, meaning public safety. And by the way, it's not just um, 
you know, wealthy trial lawyers, and I don't have much sympathy for trial lawyers generally, but it doesn't mean that in this case the McCloskeys weren't right because they were. But, I mean, it, 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 so it's not just wealthy trial lawyers in St. Louis. Good piece in the, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, why no outrage? Atlanta, Atlanta shootings surge, but it's not the cops. Atlanta narrowly, the Atlanta City Council narrowly defeated an effort to cut police funding by an 8-7 council vote. The Atlanta City Council voted against withholding funding from the Atlanta Police Department in this, you know, defund the police moment. And uh, one of the city councilmen, Michael Bond, uh, said uh, the irony about defunding to reform police is that residents in those areas are begging for more police. Many residents, especially those who are older, are frightened about crime and don't want the police to go away, said Councilman Bond. And then this from the same Journal Constitution op-ed. Many cops have taken a more hands-off approach to policing following the arrests of six officers for using tasers on two college students this month. And, of course, the arrest of the two officers in the Richard Brooks killing. Cops are reticent to get out and deal with angry people in the streets. Right. I think that's what we're seeing. And I think that's what was happening in St. Louis as well. Oh, and by the way, it's also what's happening in my home city of Chicago, which is why, in part, we've had 200 shootings and 36 murders in the last two weekends. We know this. We knew this was going to happen. The residents of these areas know what's going to happen, too. You don't need to be Ivy League researchers. But we know when you have these high profile, hyper politicized, racialized cases like the Rashard Brooks shooting and you put police back on the heels, you put criminals on offense and uh, you have lawlessness on the streets and and then police don't want to deal with angry people. Well, that leaves the ordinary citizen to defend himself and his property. And how do you think that's going to work out long term if there is no you know, intermediate institution like police to maintain order? That's what's happening in St. Louis, in Seattle, where, you know, two people have been killed inside uh, CHOP in Minneapolis, where they're defunding police. Uh, this continues to be a lost opportunity for Republicans. And while they're articulating the case for sensible police reforms and the encouragement through federal funding of police reforms at the local level to also make the strong case on behalf of the law-abiding black and white every socioeconomic strata right now you're listening to the dan proft show on the salem radio network Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Alex Berenson, friend of the show, tweeted out um, a uh, missive from the managing partner, general counsel of a Texas-based company that owns and operates 13 freestanding emergency clinics in Texas. So uh, Texas being one of those hot spots, and Governor Abbott putting pressing the pause button and reopening. What's actually happening in Texas? Well, somebody with. Um, uh, who's part of a concern that has 13 emergency clinics can give us uh, uh, perhaps a bit of a handle, some insight, and he does. In June, we tested uh, more than 2,200 patients. Positive rate now close to 20%, was 4 to 6% positive back in May. Vast majority of the cases are mild to very mild symptoms. Average age of the people getting tested is mid-30s. 
very different patient in terms of age than we've seen before June. Most of these patients would not have met the strict criteria that we previously had for COVID testing. Clinically, we've had very few hospital transfers because of COVID. Vast majority of patients are better within two to three days of the visit. Most would be described as having a cold, a mild one at that, or the symptoms related to allergies. In terms of what is driving them to the ER, roughly half have been told by their employers to get a test. They have a sneeze or a cough and their employer tells them to go home and get tested. The other half just want to know. They have mild symptoms. Some don't have any symptoms, but game the system and check a box that they have a symptom so they can get a test because you can't get a test unless you present with symptoms. The average age of uh, the average length of stay, I should say, of COVID patients is three to five days, much lower than the patients being seen in April and early May. Symptoms are also milder. Most of these patients not ending up in the ICU. The hospital ICUs are filled with really sick people with non-COVID issues. They didn't come in earlier because they were scared and now they're super sick. So, again, it's worth noting how the press corps is reporting this and, frankly, how politicians are responding to it, in part because of how the press corps is reporting it. Uh, For more uh, of an effort to separate fact from frenzy, we're pleased to be joined by Edward Peter Stringham. He's the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. He's a Davis professor of economic organizations and innovation at Trinity College and editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise. Professor Stringham, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, what, what about that? It's curious, too. We also saw the last two days the lowest uh, daily uh, death count um, since the since the outbreak. Um, you know, we see continue to see uh, deaths declining. So why why isn't that talked about in the context of the increase in cases, but the changing uh, nature of who's infected, what those infections look like, what kind of healthcare resources are required to address those uh, new infections, what kind of case fatality rate we're looking at with those new infections, all of those other ancillary data points, which you think would be sort of important to understand what's happening, don't seem to get as much airtime as just more cases. That's exactly right. So ultimately, we should be concerned with people who are getting harmed by the disease, people who are dying from the disease. But what people are doing in the media and among politicians is they keep changing the standards. So three and a half months ago, it was, we want to make sure the hospitals don't get overrun. We want to slow the spread. We can't stop the spread, but we're going to slow the spread so the hospitals don't get overrun. Then that got changed into, oh, it's not two weeks to slow the spread. It's three months or maybe indefinite lockdown. And it turns out, as you point out, the deaths have been falling slowly, and uh, but but quite quite uh, close to you know we're getting closer and closer towards zero. And uh, the good news is that's what we should be concerned about. The problem is the politicians are now saying, oh, there's more cases. Well, the main reason why there's quote more cases is there was plenty of undiagnosed cases. Three months ago, we weren't doing as much testing. Society wasn't doing as much testing. Now the amount of testing has skyrocketed. The capacity to test has gone up. So there's going to be previously undiagnosed cases are now being diagnosed. But in most cases, they're they're, uh, mild, uh, in many cases completely asymptomatic. And the result of this, which is actually good, you can see that the actual case fatality rate is very, very small, much smaller than we thought before. So it is um, uh, good for the world 
But the fact that the politicians are going around and saying, oh, there's more cases, let's shut down the economy again, it's just, just terrible. Uh, when we come back with uh, Professor Edward Peter Stringham, uh, I want to get into this uh, piece that you, uh, you wrote looking at uh, uh, the states that locked down and the handful of states that didn't lock down and comparing and contrasting the uh, economic uh, impact of the respective approaches, as well as the impact in terms of uh, caseloads and fatalities. More with Professor Edward Peter Springham, who's the president of the American Institute for Economic Research and a uh, professor of economic organizations and innovation at Trinity College right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Edward Peter Springham. He's the president of the American Institute for Economic Research and the Davis Professor of Economic Organizations and Innovation at Trinity College also editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise. Just uh, one note before we get to your piece, you mentioned about the case fatality rate being you know, relatively low. Boy, if the CDC is right that it's not two and a half million cases, but probably more like 20 million Americans who are infected, then the case fatality rate goes from about half a percent to like six one hundredths of a percent, uh, well below seasonal influenza. That's how low the case fatality rate is. Yeah, there was this idea that we're going to look at the number of reported cases in Wuhan, China, and then say, okay, 6% of people who get this are going to die. From there, people made all sorts of alarmist predictions about how 6 million Americans are going to die. Think about five of your friends who are going to die. It got people whipped up into a panic based on statistical illiteracy. There's plenty of undiagnosed cases. And if you make a policy prescriptions based on the idea that 6% of people are going to die, you end up having all sorts of draconian rules that we have right now. I want to go to the piece that you append for the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org, is where you can find it. And I'll tweet it out at Dan Prof Show as well. Really good piece. You compare the eight states that didn't lock down or use a very light touch, to the 42 states that substantially locked down and looked at uh, the impact in terms of the economic damage as well as the impact on caseloads, uh, COVID-19 infections and deaths. And what did you find? So this is based on data from the Sentinel, not-for-profit news source. And it turns out that there's two variables to look at. One is unemployment rate and the other is mortality rate. The first thing is we can predict ahead of time that the draconian states, the lockdown states, are going to have higher rates of unemployment compared to the non-lockdown states. And that turned out to be true, unsurprisingly. So 13% unemployment rate in the lockdown states compared to 8% unemployment rate in the non-lockdown states. So that's one thing that we want to be looking at. A lot of people said, oh, it's not a big deal. It's only going to be short term. We can get through this. Well, actually, unemployment 
thirteen percent of the population. It's actually a huge, huge. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's and, remarkable actually how much twenty-one million Americans unemployed, forty-seven million filing first-time unemployment benefits in the last uh, fourteen weeks. How, how that sort of treat? Oh, you know, we'll we'll get over it. We'll get through it. It's not. Yeah, it's it's no no real issue. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I mean, these are Great Depression level numbers, and we're supposed to not worry about it. Oh, yeah. If one is a college professor or a CNN reporter, say, oh, just stay at home, just stay at home. Well, most people don't have that luxury. And we're talking about people's livelihoods. They're unable to then care for their children. There's all sorts of problems associated with economic malaise. So there were people a couple months ago, oh, it's just faux outrage. No, this is really serious for lots. On the flip side, there's the health question. So there were people who were creating, I would say, this false choice where they say, oh, look, we've got to shut down the economy. If you don't shut down the economy, there's going to be a huge amount of deaths. We're all going to die. And it turns out now there's lots and lots of variables. And so this is not the causal factor per se. But it turns out the states with lockdown and the states without lockdown, the states without lockdown actually have lower rates of COVID-19 mortality. So it contradicts the idea, these very strong statements, by the way, people said, oh yeah, you want to open the economy, but you're going to do so at the expense of life. If you leave the economy open, we're going to have these huge death rates. Specifically, uh, you know, if uh, Provo, Utah could be the next New York City. <laughs> right. It, I mean, it, those are the statements it, that were being made. If, if if Melinda Gates, if there's covid anywhere, there's covid everywhere. We all have covid. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the very interesting thing. It turns out that there is coronavirus in every single state based on the measured numbers of cases per million. There's basically the same amount of coronavirus in the lockdown states versus the non-lockdown states. The um, lockdown states had a slightly higher amount of coronavirus cases. It's just the measured cases, so it's not all cases. But here's the really interesting thing. The deaths per million in the lockdown states is 375. The deaths per million in the non-lockdown states is one-third that, so 100 per million. So it directly contradicts these alarmists. Specifically, there's a theoretical physicist out of Imperial College in London. Oh, Neil yes, Neil Ferguson. Ferguson, sure. And he said, if you don't have lockdown, all these people are going to die. And then if you do have a lockdown, we can attribute the low death rates that we see to the lockdown. Well, here we go. We've got some states without lockdown and actually not this out of control death rate that he predicts actually even lower. Well, and you have some states, too. I mean, you know, say, well, it's disproportionately affecting minorities or it's disproportionately impacting older people. Well, you have some states that in terms of the demographics of their population are above national averages. For example, Arkansas is one of the non-lockdown states, and Arkansas has a 15 percent black population, which is higher than the the uh, 12 percent nationally of, of Americans being uh, black and uh, and so and yet they're still in, you know, one of these um, non-lockdown states has a significantly lower mortality rate than their lockdown compatriots. Yeah, I think the real unfortunate victims of the overreaction are all of the people who ended up dying in the hospitals in long term nursing homes and, yeah, right. in places like New York. That's actually the worst possible thing to do is to be forcing these 
these uh, sick patients into uh, vulnerable populations. Right. So that's a direct action of the overreaction. You've got tons and tons of people dying in those those homes. And then the same thing with a lot of these um, uh, hospitals in some of the you know, lower lower income neighborhoods in, in New York. They were just putting everybody on a ventilator just instantly. Okay, this is what we need to do. And few people, uh, there's been some reports that say that this was an overreaction as well and actually led to more deaths than necessary. He is Edward Peter String. I'm president of the American Institute for Economic Research, Davis Professor of Economic Organizations and Innovation at Trinity College, and editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. I go to parties sometimes until four. It's hard to leave when you can't find the door. It's tough to handle this fortune. The more you listen the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, I'm going to do this segment more just because the uh, intro jingle is fun. Uh, we talked a little sports and politics in the intersection, arrogance and ignorance with Andrew Clavin earlier in the show about the social justice statements that are green lighted for NBA players upon their return to action at the end of next month. College basketball also getting into the act and one of college basketball's preeminent coaches, Coach K, Duke, he has a message on Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Say it. Can't you say it? Black Lives Matter. We should be saying it every day. It's not political. This is not a political statement. It's a human rights statement. It's a fairness statement. Over the last couple months, I have had an opportunity to see more, to listen more, to think more, and to understand at a deeper level. So have you. Yeah. So have you. Do we not see the problem, the disease, the plague that has been with our country for four centuries? Do we not see systemic racism and social injustice? Come on, we all see that. It's manifested in so many ways. Criminal justice, the killings that we have seen and we haven't seen, the denial of economic opportunities for our black community, educational opportunities, health care, it's manifested in so many ways and has been there for four centuries. You know, we see that. And what we do when we see it, we talk, all right, but we turn the other way. We don't solve the problem. The problem will not be solved, and no problem is solved unless you acknowledge the problem. Uh, boy, he may be a great uh, recruiter and ex's own O's man on the bench, but... Um... <laughs> talking around the issue uh, and, uh, you know, starting with the 1619 Project's uh, date and suggesting no progress has been made in 400 years, that it's all around us. What is, Coach, slavery? The uh, opportunities that are not present, the schools that are 
not doing a particularly good job at, edu- at educating. Well, who's in charge of them today if you want to talk about systems? How many times do we have to go through this? Coach K just wants to emote like anybody else. Like saying Black Lives Matter. There I said it, Coach. Does that is that some sort of magic incantation that is going to address some of the inequities that individuals have suffered and are suffering at present? Hardly. It's pathetic virtue signaling. And um, I guess Coach K, I would hope he would know better. I hope he would be better. I would hope you'd get uh, uh, more, uh, well, a deeper perspective from him like you do from, say, Dabo Sweeney at, uh, at Clemson. But I guess it's not to be had. I mean, Coach K is a Chicago product. So, you know, the Chicago, uh, uh, Chicago's lobotomized politics uh, afflicts just about everybody. I mean, except me. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. The uh, companies, including Starbucks, that are uh, doing a 30-day boycott of Facebook, Twitter, uh, not doing any social media advertising because they want those platforms to be more rigorous in censoring speech that the left doesn't like. Coca-Cola, Starbucks, Verizon, North Face, Eddie Bauer, and other major brands have paused Facebook advertising after left-wing activist groups claimed it does not censor enough political speech. They want flagging of posts by politicians. They want fact-checking. Wall Street Journal observes the activists also want Facebook to use algorithms to more closely surveil private groups as well as remove any that focus on climate denialism. Watch out if you debate climate projections and what you thought was a private forum. Some firms have signed on to this campaign because they cut advertising budgets anyway amid the coronavirus downturn and see an opportunity to win easy plaudits from a monolithic media. But the boycott nonetheless reflects a new and worrying effort to leverage corporate power against America's open public square. Woke Fortune 500 firms had better hope that they will make fast and permanent friends among the anti-capitalists of the new left because they are fast burning through reservoirs of goodwill among American conservatives. Indeed, they are. We should take a much more hostile posture to these amoral simps in C-suites. I'll tell you that. Uh, Matt Taibbi had an excellent piece on the uh, Amazon's uh, number one bestseller, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, perhaps the dumbest book ever written. Uh, But he uh, mentions that corporate America is going to buy into white fragility, the idea that you are racist. There's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is try and manage it for for the rest of your life. And that's where Robin D'Angelo and the hate minders come in and instruct you on your conduct and the composition of your firm and the composition of your daily life. Taibbi writing, for corporate America, the calculation is simple. What's easier, giving up business models based on war, slave labor and regulatory arbitrage or benching Aunt Jemima? There's a deal to be made here, greased by the fact that the quote-unquote, anti-racism profits promoted in books like Wait Fragility share corporate America's instinctive hostility to privacy, individual rights, freedom of speech, etc. Corporate America doubtless views the current protest movement as something that can be addressed as an HR matter. 
among other things, by hiring thousands of D'Angelo's, the author of White Fragility, to institute codes for the proper mode of black-white workplace interaction. That's exactly what's happening. The response, how should a conservative respond, particularly a conservative policymaker to corporate America? Uh, my response would be to end all of the goodies. It should be the free market response. The one thing corporate America doesn't want to do is compete. They're rent seekers. They want government to protect them and punish their competitors. End that. That's the one sentence free market solution to this, or at least reckoning for corporate America. You do what you want, but you sink or swim on your own. No more export-import bank subsidies, for example. No more carve-outs for you and your buddies, whether you're a Wall Street bank or an agribusiness uh, relying on price supports. End it and do so now. By the way, the uh, other advantage of that, I would argue, it's pro-growth in a time where we need pro-growth policies more than ever. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Jim Urio, CNBC contributor. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What about corporate America right now, since uh, obviously these Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies drive market performance and so have great impact on people's retirements? Doesn't there need to be some kind of reckoning? It's, it's going to come from one direction or the other. Yeah, I would love the reckoning you're talking about where government backs off and allows people to sink or swim sounds fantastic to me. You mentioned two separate things. First, carve-outs for agribusiness. You know, Chicago's been home to the futures exchanges for 100 years. What we do is sell insurance to farmers to lock in prices early. We're always looking wide-eyed, like scratching our heads when the government steps in to pay farmers. It was a perfectly good system before they were doing that. And you talked about the platforms and now these corporations and the knee-jerk reaction pulling their advertising, which just blows me away. But I do think that it follows the same arc of when you start out a company and as things grow, it just continues to get clumsy and cumbersome until it collapses on its own weight. I think that could happen to the social media platforms too. If they continue to censor that way, won't it be just a time where even the liberals will realize that they're just shouting into an echo chamber and they'll look for a smaller, leaner, more open platform? And I don't know what that platform is yet, but I don't mind this kind of thing happening. If a company is going to start to do stupid things, let them do stupid things, and then the invisible hand comes in and straightens things out. And that's what I'm hoping will happen. But we just we get so much in the way of the invisible hand now. Well, and uh, that's what the left wants to do in this crisis, right? Uh, Al Gore, he and a gentleman named David Blood, a senior partner of Generation Investment Management, have a commentary of what capitalism after the coronavirus. COVID-19, with all its unfolding tragedy, presents a once in a century obligation to rethink the relationships among business markets, government, society, what's desperately needed. And what we must deliver is a sustainable form of capitalism, Jim where investors shift to zero carbon inclusive business model that is already well underway. You know, Gavin Newsom said the same thing. We should never let this go past without instituting our progressive agenda. And this is the Rahm Emanuel playbook. You never let a crisis go to waste. Now, I will throw them a little bit of a bone. In early stage capitalism, there was a presupposition that the environment was an almost inexhaustible resource. We know a lot more than that now. I think capitalism and even libertarianism, whatever you subscribe to, can exist and still take care of the environment. I mean, I don't see why that can't be a push. You have to pay your way. If you pollute, that's fine. That's the only thing I'll ever agree with Al Gore on, and that little tiny part of it. But the notion that they're going to take this 
and all of a sudden use the chaotic aftermath to pass their progressive agenda is infuriating, and it's not surprising even in a little bit. Uh, you're a restaurateur. Uh, we talked to uh, New York investment banker Christopher Whalen yesterday about what's happening on the ground in New York City, and he suggested a quarter of the restaurants are going to cease to exist. They're not coming back, or at least not for long. It seems to be that's happening in Chicago as well. Blackbird announced yesterday they will not reopen. I mean, Blackbird was open for 22 years. This is you know, one of the great restaurants in Chicago. One of the partners said, think of what six feet of social distancing means to Blackbird. How do you operate a 14 by nine kitchen, for example, in addition to being a small space and diners relatively close together, so forth? The 25 percent or 50 people, whichever is lower limitations going forward for some indeterminate period of time. Even after that, the phase five, where the discussion is basically you can't go above those thresholds until there's a vaccine, if that ever comes. I mean, we're still really in the beginning stages of categorizing the devastation, aren't we? There's no doubt about it. And I think the estimate of a quarter of the restaurants seems pretty reasonable to me. When you hear a story about Blackbird, like you said, one of our absolutely finest restaurants and they look at it and don't think their business model can work that just blows me away and it saddens me you know my situation is different with the restaurant we have so right now we have two and a half acres we are outside and we are busy and the restrictions for inside don't particularly matter to us now come you know when the weather changes and if we still have tons of restrictions on inside i would jack my number up of restaurants that won't survive from 25 percent to 35 percent easily that and again i'm not completely worried about this right now because and i'll tell you why is that that you know these cases are exploding everywhere and they they don't talk about the fact that the deaths keep collapsing deaths per day are down 90 percent the last two days have been the lowest two-day total since we've been keeping them in national fatalities. You know, you see the stock market and the stock market is hanging in there nicely. They see the same data as everybody else. So you can concentrate on the fact that a bunch more 33-year-olds and a bunch more 25-year-olds are getting coronavirus and are going to be fine because of it and think that that's a national tragedy. Or you can look at the fact that far less people are dying from it and say to yourself, huh, maybe we overestimated the uh, lethality of it. And guess what? We absolutely overestimated the lethality of it. So you could concentrate on one of two things. And I'm hoping that the public forces the government's hand on which side they're supposed to be concentrating on, but I'm not positive that'll happen. Well, right. And if it doesn't, because data doesn't seem to matter in certain quarters, if it doesn't happen that way, then you're talking about, you know, a long plateau, both with the virus and the recovery, right? We always thought that. And we always thought that the situation in Illinois is different for a few reasons. What I'm about to say, I'm not saying for sure this is happening, but we know for certain that over the last couple months, J.B. Brisker has mentioned out loud that our financial situation was just fine until coronavirus happened. So you know that he's looking at the situation going, oh, wow, here's my opportunity. Here's my opportunity to step back, point at the rubble and say, gosh, look what coronavirus did to our wonderfully balanced state. And I understand motivation. Motivation is a terrible thing like that. And, and I, I just, it saddens me to think that there's even any possibility at all that he would have the motivation to keep us locked down, to keep our economic condition bad, knowing full well that at the end of the rainbow is possibly a federal, federal buyout, a bailout, or a Fed enormous loan, and they've already started uh, lending Illinois money. He is Jim Murio, contributor to CNBC, as you heard, proprietor of Brands and Palatine, uh, the best burger in Illinois. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You take it on the run, baby.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and it's not Karen's we should worry about, it's Liz's. Uh, really uh, good piece in City Journal by Igor Narinsky, who uh, is a Yale Law School grad and a Wharton business grad, um, contributed this uh, to, to the City Journal. You know, the Karen's, we've got that meme, but what's Liz? Hashtag Liz. Uh, he... Uh, says the Liz's we should worry about our he names in honor of Elizabeth Hubbard, who is a key figure in the Salem witch trials, whose impassioned accusations led to many a hanging. And it's the witch hunters we should worry about in the modern context. I think that's straightforward enough. But uh, listen to Mr. Narinsky's closing paragraph to the Liz witch hunters out there. The times we are living in favor you, but things change. Salem's chapter ended, as did most others of its kind. Perhaps things will get worse before they get better, but this too shall pass. Until it does, know that for every person who beatifies you with likes and retweets or whatever passes for community these days, many more do not approve. Most acknowledge the enormous progress our society has made against bigotry, and most likewise acknowledge that some work remains to be done. And most will stay quiet, but it is they, not you, who are the majority. Here's hoping that that majority stays intact when the United States emerges from this, whatever this is. For uh, more understanding on whatever this is, we're pleased to be joined by Sorab Amari. He's the op-ed editor of the New York Post, author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. Sorab, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Dan. Um, so uh, per uh, this gentleman's piece at City Journal, how would you describe what this is, the, the witch hunting as he terms it? Oh, boy. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a large phenomenon one can't begin to fully wrap one's head around it. My initial thought has been that one key factor of in all this that we don't talk about enough is the lockdown. Right? We've had extended lockdowns, and what I've argued is that we've essentially imposed Arab Spring-style conditions on ourselves as a result of um, lockdowns that were extended far beyond when they were necessary. I supported them insofar as the idea was to flatten the curves. We did that. You know, we, our hospitals didn't get overwhelmed. We know we can now handle surges, but in, in especially blue states, the lockdowns have gone on. And so we've created, like I said, those Arab spring style conditions. What are the conditions in the Arab world that causes these kinds of uprisings often explosively? You have lots of young men who are bored are jobless, the weather is hot, they don't have anywhere to go, they don't have any outlets, and the one thing you can do, which actually the political class in these blue states not only approves, but encourages, is to go out and protest. I'm not saying that's the only factor, but I'm just saying it's one factor that we don't pay enough attention to. Well, and I also, it, well just, yeah. just, to, just to hold you there for a second, I mean, the, the inter- it's interesting to think about that, be, and, and so... Continuing with that analogy, what you have in some of those uh, Arab countries is actual uh, repression, oppressive states, theocracies. And what you have here is a generation or two or three 
of Americans who've been taught that America is just like one of those oppressive theocracies. Yeah, I mean, uh, you have the, you know, the ongoing, I hate to say because it's kind of a cliche phrase, but the march of the, of the hard left to our institutions beginning in 1968, you know, I have a column today in the paper by uh, Roger Kimball, the editor of the New Criterion, and he kind of points out that it didn't really stop. Like we, you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, a lot of conservatives thought that was all over and they stopped paying attention to cultural institutions. At most, they would trot out some, you know, far left postmodernist academic and laugh at her atrocious garbled prose and so forth. And that was that. But, you know, what happens on campus turns out doesn't uh, stay on campus. You know, this this was a real intellectual ferment uh, that, uh, you know, suddenly we're all living on the quad, as it were. Um, and look, I mean, look, I, 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 when, when the killing of George Floyd happened in Minneapolis, I, like everyone else, deplored it. No one should uh, be treated that way by police officers. Uh, you know, if there are reasonable steps for police reform, uh, let's talk about it. But uh, we, we've gone completely beyond that. It's a kind of uh, the demands are so outrageous and, and deranged. And by the way, the demands are such that, as you know, Dan, if they're actually carried out, poor people of color are the ones who are going to pay the highest price. The young woke, white wokesters who march through the streets of New York here and flip off the NYPD and so forth, they live in neighborhoods where crime doesn't really happen for the most part. Right. They're insulated. They live in Manhattan. They live in on the Upper West Side. Where crime really happens are in communities of color, the very people they claim to try to speak for, uh, and and they're the ones who are going to pay because, look, the very wealthy will have in, in, in the sort of ultra-upper sphere, they'll have private security. In other neighborhoods, you have doormen and so on and so forth. It's, it's in the Bronx. It's in Harlem where people will be uh, hunted by criminals and, and, you know, God forbid, we'll go back to the 1980s when, as you remember moms in Harlem and the Bronx, but not in Midtown Manhattan. No, right. And and so so these they would keep their babies in bathtubs so to, to avoid stray bullets from gang wars and so forth. And that's happening in Chicago at present. Um and and here you know here's the thing too. They're they're insulated, those individuals you're talking about, sort of the woke walkers, the white woke walkers, uh are insulated physically and also intellectually. They seem uh to um, gather around a few uh, fallacious uh, premises, one of which is that the latest point in time is the most enlightened, the most advanced point in time. Yes. So um, this is an argument I make in a in a first thing uh, essay called A Historical Activism. And the question is, are we more moral than our ancestors? Uh, now, this has been a very old temptation. It's been with us for a long time. Um, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, called it chronological snobbery. Other people call it presentism. And what it means is that you think that whatever is are the latest ideas are also the best, the most correct. And uh, that just means that whatever came in the past has been debunked. And it's a, it's a very dangerous way to judge the past because 
I'm not saying you shouldn't judge the past, right? We're not ancestor worshipers. Our ancestors did make mistakes. Slavery was hideous. The URA apartheid up to the 1960s in the American South was hideous and wrong. But the temptation by being so easy to judge the past is that you don't see the actual sins of the present. You'd fail, you, in other words, you claim to be woke, but you're actually giving yourself a sleeping potion where you think if you tear down the statues and memorials to the complex and glorious past that we have, that's it. You've done, it's all kind of symbolic action, but you don't actually notice what, what are the injustices, the real injustices today. Some of them are racial, but there are other ones, like class ones, that these people don't address at all. He is Saurabh Amari. He is the op-ed editor for the New York Post and author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. Saurabh, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank take care. Shake down, break down, take down. Everybody wants into the crowd alive. Break down, take down, you must You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Earlier in the program, we uh, talked about a happy event, a happy holding by the Supreme Court, that in the Espinoza case, advancing the cause of school choice. Uh, now we must return to an unhappy holding from the Supreme Court uh, in the Louisiana admitting privileges abortion restriction, that Louisiana law. And Justice Roberts siding with the leftist pro-aborts on the court, as we discussed yesterday. You know, just to, to put not too fine a point on it, Justice Roberts is really sort of the worst kind of political hack in terms of what he has become based on his conduct. And by that, I mean, like a politician, he will use legal principles when convenient. So he invokes stare decisis to defend his concurrence with the majority in this case. And he'll discard legal principles in the Constitution when it's convenient. He does what's politically expedient. He doesn't operate by any judicial philosophy. And that turns out to be a problem because Robert's saying in uh, his uh, concurrence, the legal doctrine of stare decisis requires us, absent special circumstances, to treat like cases alike. The Louisiana law imposed a burden on access to abortion just as severe as that imposed by the Texas law for the same reasons. Therefore, the Louisiana law cannot stand under our precedence. Before we even get to whether the Louisiana law and the Texas law were substantially the same. Ilya Shapiro over the Cato Institute notes, um, stare decisis didn't stop Roberts from overturning precedent in Citizens United, in Janus, in Nick versus the Township of Scott, cases in which the precedent was much older and much more entrenched, but a very recent close decision which he dissented apparently carries more weight, the Texas case that he was referencing. For a more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined again by Abby Johnson, Planned Parenthood director turned pro-life advocate, founder of And Then There Were Non-Ministry, author of Unplanned, which, as you know, or should know, and should have seen, optioned into a movie, and host of Blue, uh, Beautiful Lives, a five-part interview series now streaming on Pure Flix. Abby, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Your uh, reaction to uh, the uh, Roberts uh, decision in particular, the overall decision, but Roberts's role in that in particular. I mean, gosh, he's just the gift that keeps on giving, right? For us conservatives, 
I can't say I'm too surprised. He's just, he continues to be an incredible disappointment for pro-lifers. It seems common sense. I mean, when you look at the medical industry, you see that medical facilities are, are generally regulated to a, a common standard except for abortion facilities. So, you know, this case would have created uh, that common standard and elevated uh, that standard for abortion facilities. Now, you know, we see other facilities more regulated. Well, and nail salons, yeah, and, salons. And, and, and this is this has turned out to be a real thing that happens in the real world with real people being hurt, if not killed. Um, the Gosnell situation in Philadelphia that also was uh, made into to a movie that a ghoulish abortionist now serving the rest of his life in prison uh, in in Chicago. Um, the case uh, uh, about eight years ago of Tonya Reeves, a 24 year old black woman, 16 weeks pregnant, uh, and she was uh, uh, essentially uh, mistreated at the Planned Parenthood facility in Chicago. And then again at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, her family got a $2 million settlement after she died from hemorrhaging from a botched abortion in uh, two years after her death. So, I mean, these are these are real things with respect to having safe medical environments where you're doing invasive procedures. This is not just, you know, waving the pro-life flag here. Right, exactly. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, we have a website called checkmyclinic.org where we have gathered all of the violations, the health code violations for abortion facilities across the country, and we have put them up on public display um, for the American people to see. What's astounding is that in many states, there are no health inspections for abortion facilities, Mm -hmm. so they are essentially self-regulated. And here the Supreme Court has essentially said, that's fine. They don't need to be regulated. It's fine. Um, You know, currently... With the COVID crisis, or whatever you want to call it, uh, community pools are more regulated than, than, than abortion facilities right now. I mean, women are in danger. Not only are babies being ripped apart in their mother's wombs, but now women are, are at grave risk every time they walk into an abortion facility. And women's rights groups are calling this a win for women. When we come back, um, we'll uh, talk a little bit more about uh, the decision and, and particularly Roberts's reversal from the previous position he held in a, a similar case and why it wasn't exactly what Roberts said in terms of the Louisiana law being exactly like the Texas law as uh, Justice Alito outlined in his dissent. More with Abby Johnson right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, Senator John Kennedy, Republican from Louisiana, uh, characterized uh, the Roberts reversal on the a matter of, of the Texas law in 2016 versus the Louis, uh, regarding admitting privileges for abortionists requiring admitting privileges at a local hospital versus the uh, Louisiana law struck down in uh, holding by the high court yesterday where Roberts changed his position and hid behind precedent as the reason for it. 
Here's how uh, John Kennedy described that reversal in an interview with Martha McCallum. Four years ago, in a case out of Texas, same statute, same issue, the Chief Justice voted with the conservatives. Today, he voted with the liberals. He changed his vote. Uh, He flip-flopped. He flip-flopped like a banked catfish. And um, that's why I say the process worries me as much as the result. This is why so many people think that our our federal courts, our federal judges, have become nothing but politicians in robes. Now, the Chief Justice famously says all the time that he's just an umpire. All he does is call balls and strikes. Well, four years ago, he called a ball. Today, same pitch. He called a strike. I don't like normally like sports metaphors for policy, but that's a pretty good one from Senator Kennedy. Uh, we're pleased to be joined uh, back with uh, Abby Johnson, Planned Parenthood director, turned pro-life advocate, founder of And Then There Were None Ministry, author of Unplanned, uh, which was optioned into a movie, and host of Beautiful Lives, a five-part interview series now streaming on Pure Flix. Abby, um, uh, Senator Kennedy summed that up, uh, some Roberts up fairly uh, tidily for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's not even really standing behind a, a precedent because he completely changed his vote. And this wasn't the same case. I mean, this was this was actually this was a different argument here. Yes. So it it really didn't make any sense. His vote didn't make any sense. It makes you wonder, does somebody have something on Robert? I mean, I, I mean, that's what I keep thinking. Like, what is going on here? You know, we are now looking at justices. We have been looking at justices that um, they're not really looking at the law. They are they're looking at politics over the law. And, and that's the way really it's been for many years. Uh, and Alito, in his dissent, uh, really provided some detail to submarine Roberts's claim that he had to follow precedent here. Uh, like, you know, like he was bound. He didn't want to be bound, but he was bound. Not the case. The suggestion, writes Alito, that whole women's health is materially identical to this case. The Texas case is identical to the Louisiana case. The, that suggestion is ironic since the two cases differ in a way that was critical to the court's reasoning in whole woman's health. The difference between a pre-enforcement facial challenge and a post-enforcement challenge based on our evidence of the law's effects. And basically, you know, it, 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 that, that difference and the basis for the court's decision in the case four years ago, um, Roberts changed his position on that underlying issue. So you can't just look at the law. You have to look at the argument that was made and where Roberts was. So the interesting thing and the ironic thing is Alito writes the same argument was made. The, the, the challenge is different. And Roberts took a different position on the underlying argument. Right. You're exactly right. And the case is different. The Holman's Health v. Hellerstedt case is different than the June medical case. They were not presenting the same argument here. So to say that he his hand was forced in some way is false. I mean, that's absolutely not true. These were two completely separate cases. They were not arguing the same things here. Uh, and and, and the, the other the thing the majority argued was that uh, this presents no medical benefit uh, thus, it would be an undue burden uh, on women's access to abortion. So uh, there's no medical benefit to a abortionist being required to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. So in case uh, he has uh, or she has a health event with the patient, 
that abortionists can go to the hospital with the patient to get the necessary treatment in a hospital setting. There's no medical benefit to that, even uh, in spite of the cases like the Tonya Reeves case in Chicago that I mentioned. So let me tell you what happens inside of abortion facilities because these physicians don't have admitting privileges. So inside of facilities, these physicians, there's no reason that they can't get admitting privileges. They choose not to. Now, they may not be able to because they have negligence on their records or, you know, that may be the case. But if they wanted to get admitting privileges, they could. They choose not to. So, but what happens is, for instance, what happened in our facilities is that many times the abortion doctors, they live in other cities. So we would have a recovery room full of patients, you know, recovering, and all the abortions are done. Patients are in the recovery room, and our doctor takes off for home, which may be an hour and a half, two hours away. We still have maybe 20 patients in the recovery room. Doctor is already 30, 45 minutes down the road. Our patients start to stand up and go home, and we don't even know it, but the doctor has perforated the uterus. So when the woman stands up, all of a sudden, there's a huge gush of blood down at her feet. Well, we can't help her. Doctor's 45 minutes down the road. So now we're, you know, what do we do? Well, we've got to call an ambulance. Oh, but wait, we're not allowed to call an ambulance because that's against our protocol at the, at the clinic. So now I've got to transport her in my own private car to a hospital where a doctor that she doesn't know is going to have to take care of her, where a physician, if they had admitting privileges, could have just accompanied her to the hospital to continue that care. That's what any other surgical center, that's the standard of care. I've had my tonsils removed in an ambulatory surgical center. I've had other procedures done in surgical centers before. Every other surgical doctor has admitting privileges at a local hospital when you have surgeries done at other surgical centers except for abortion facilities. Yeah, it's such a great point, an important distinction uh, that you're drawing. It also speaks to, as you suggested, the idea of being having to get admitting privileges is sort of a quality control because then the hospital has liability exposure, so they're going to make sure that the individual they're providing admitting privileges is you know, on the up and up is professional is uh, it doesn't have a a, 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 a a poor professional record, as you suggested. So it's one more layer of protection, which makes eminent sense. And that's why it's done in every other setting, except with respect to uh, the abortion mills. Uh, it's, it's such an important point. Uh, Abby Johnson, Planned Parenthood director, turned pro-life advocate, founder of And Then There Were Non-Ministry, author of Unplanned. And also check the movie Unplanned out in the streaming services. It's on Amazon Prime is where I watched it. And host of Beautiful Lives, a five-part interview series now streaming on Pure Flix. Abby, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Michael Schellenberger writing at uh, environmentalprogress.org. On behalf of environmentalists everywhere, I would like to formally apologize for the climate scare we created over the last 30 years. This is a really important piece, as is his book, which I'll get to in a second, forthcoming book. Because uh, let me remind you, as soon as COVID-19 is behind us, whenever that might be, uh, the Green New Deal and the uh, power grab associated with uh, environmental extremist politics will be right back. 
So lest you think that they have forgotten their desire to remake the economy in a carbon neutral, fantastical fashion to eliminate the fossil fuel industry, they have not. They have not. They're just uh, more pressing priorities right now that provide more immediate political benefit. But they'll be back here. So Schellenberger's apology in the context of it is as relevant today as it was prior to the pandemic and the civil unrest. As an energy expert asked by Congress to provide objective expert testimony and invited by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to serve as an expert review of its assessment report, I feel an obligation to apologize for how badly we environmentalists have misled the public. Rather stunning. Not a right-wing anti-environmentalist. At 17, I lived in Nicaragua to show solidarity with the Sandinistan Socialist Revolution. At 23, I raised money for Guatemalan women's cooperatives. In my early 20s, I lived in the semi-Amazon doing research with small farmers fighting land invasions. At 26, I helped expose poor conditions at Nike factories in Asia. I became an environmentalist at 16 when I threw a fundraiser for Rainforest Action Network. At 27, I helped save the last unprotected ancient redwoods in California. In my 30s... I advocated renewables and successfully helped persuade the Obama administration to invest $90 billion into them. Over the last few years, I've helped save enough nuclear plants from being replaced by fossil fuels to replace a sharp in- to prevent a sharp increase in emissions. Okay, bona fides. But until last year, I mostly avoided speaking out against the climate scare, partly because I was embarrassed. After all, I'm as guilty of alarmism as any other environmentalist. For years, I referred to climate change as an existential threat to human civilization and called it a crisis. But mostly I was scared. I remained quiet about the climate disinformation campaign because I was afraid of losing friends and funding. The few times I summoned the courage to defend climate science from those who misrepresented, I suffered harsh consequences. And so I mostly stood by and did next to nothing as my fellow environmentalists terrified the public. I apologize. And this piece, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof, you don't have time to go uh, at Dan Prof show. We don't have enough time to go out, uh, go in, into it uh, today, but I'll come back to it because he he runs through a bunch of facts that are going to be featured in his um, his uh, forthcoming book. And uh, we should go through them. The book is called Apocalypse Never. And uh, he has become you know somebody now emboldened to expose what he knows to be untrue. The frenzy that the left has induced environmentalism as religion, just as we're seeing this play out with respect to the pandemic, the same sort of frenzy, the same sort of religious fervor, the same sort of uh, uh, men and women without chests looking for something to fill the hole in the middle of them. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. We appreciate you tuning in and hope you do so tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.